You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, greetings, Northway Church. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Northway. Um, as Shay mentioned a few minutes ago, um, this is obviously a, a, an unusual time in not only the life of our church, but in our city and in our world. Um, we've watched the effects of COVID-19 spread first across Asia, then to Europe, and now here to the U.S., um, and for, for a lot of us, myself included, we first watched this with a type of curiosity, but now it's impossible to ignore. We're feeling the disruption everywhere. Um, schools being closed, restaurants closed, uh, working from home, stores with empty shelves, uh, dealing with the, um, the, the difficulties that come with all of that. And these things are not insignificant, but for some of us, we felt the effect in even more severe ways through uh, the risk of physical illness, job loss, canceling weddings, profound economic insecurity. And for our church, there's an even greater sense of irony. First a tornado and now a global pandemic. Since January, we have been looking at the core values of our church through our DNA series. Shay mentioned that originally we planned uh, to bring to you our, our value of justice this week, but we made the decision uh, about midweek to instead uh, cover the value of care. And I believe that this is from the Lord. I believe that uh, God has something unique and special for us this, uh, this gathering. And um, I believe it's his word to us. And my prayer is that God will use these next few minutes to encourage us and to strengthen us in the grace of Jesus. Um, our value of care, we've stated it in this way, that we care for one another in the hope of the gospel. Originally, my plan was to cast a vision somewhat broadly for how we can minister God's grace to each other in the struggles and suffering of everyday life with some key takeaways and applications for us to pursue. And I still wanna emphasize this value but the approach is going to be a little bit different in light of all that we're facing. I believe that this passage that we'll look at this morning, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 11, this is God's word for us today. It's what he has for us. And I don't think it could be any timelier. So with that in mind, what I want to do with you during this time is to answer two relevant, crucial questions. The first is this, how does God intend to help us in this present trial? Put another way, how does he intend to care for you right now? And how does he intend to use us as we seek to care for others? How will you care for others where they are? I want to share with you six themes from this text that help us answer these questions. These are themes that will give us something of a roadmap as we reflect on these two questions. How does God intend to care for us, and how will we care for others? So open in your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read this passage as we seek to answer uh, these questions. I'm going to start by reading the whole passage, and then we'll come back and we'll work through it uh, little by little. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. God's Word says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's Word. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives, that you truly are the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, the one who has entered into our lives. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you, by the Holy Spirit, would speak to us and encourage us with the grace you have given through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to see your loving care so that we, in turn, could minister your grace to others wherever they are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first theme that I want us to see this morning that helps to answer these questions, how does God intend to care for us and how will we care for others, is this, that we learn to see God as supreme. Look again with me at verse 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians begins like the rest of Paul's letters. There's a personal greeting um, that, that was customary for letters written in the first century, though Paul emphasizes the gospel basis uh, upon which he writes. But after this greeting, Paul does something somewhat distinct. He begins with a declaration. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul doesn't begin with his usual prayer of thanksgiving, but instead a declaration of praise for God. This statement is meaningful enough, but we can't truly understand its significance without a little bit of context. This letter that we began reading uh, just a moment ago, 2 Corinthians, was written probably about 
uh, AD 56, about six years after Paul first began his pastoral relationship with the Corinthians. Acts 18 tells us how he came to Corinth, and during that first visit to the city, the church at Corinth was born as a result of Paul's ministry, and he cared for them with a deep love and affection over a period of about 18 months before he left for Syria. After he left, he wrote and received letters from the church, but then he also received a concerning report from some within Corinth which prompted him to write the letter we know as 1 Corinthians so that he could address these problems that were surfacing in the church. But things didn't get better, unfortunately, which led Paul to change his travel plans so that he could visit the church sooner than he had even said and so that he could care for them. But when he arrived, he actually suffered personal, personal attack and accusation by one of the members of the church. And instead of the church supporting Paul, in his apostolic authority, his commissioning by Jesus, they abandoned him. And they actually questioned whether he who led them to Christ was actually the apostle he claimed to be. After he left Corinth through much pain, he was overcome by grief and despair at the state of their hearts. And Paul wrote again, only this time, his words were severe and pointed, and they came in the form of a strongly worded rebuke that their abandoning of him came very close to their abandoning of the gospel itself. Amazingly, the Corinthians repented when they read this letter. And Paul, in response, wrote again to the Corinthians, which is our book of 2 Corinthians. And after all that he's been through with the Corinthians, all of the relational pain, all of the suffering, he begins this letter with his salutation of blessing. He calls them holy ones. He calls them saints. And then he begins with this note of praise. I just want to ask us, how in the world could this kind of response be possible? How could someone so weighed down by the suffering that he faced and the conflict that he endured turn and instead utter blessing and praise to God? And then I want to ask you this question. How do we do the same thing in the circumstances that we are facing today? And here's the answer. It's only by centering our lives on the strength of the God whose very character is mercy true God centrality in our hearts. Whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Think back to our two questions. How does God care for us? And how does he mean for us to care for others? And as Paul begins to express and now makes clear, God's care for us begins with an invitation to see him as supreme in our lives. Why else would he begin this letter the way he does, given everything that he and the Corinthians had been through, except to remind them of God's ultimate glory, of his power, that he is the creator, he is the sovereign Lord, and he is to be praised above all and through all. But not only is God glorious in all things, the text says that he is full of mercy the father of mercies. He is the source of mercy, the source of true compassion, which means that he looks upon his creatures, you and I, with fatherly care and attention. This is not care that is far off, but it is care that has come near. 
I just want to say it in this way. For you today watching this, God's care is near. He is near. God's mercy is fundamentally expressed, this care, this love, through his personal comfort. He is the God of all comfort. What does this mean? It's not comfort in an earthly sense, surely, but rather it is the truest comfort for the sin-brokenness of this world. It's the promise of restoration, of wholeness, of healing, of shalom. This word comfort is from the same word group that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe help, consolation, encouragement. And in fact, it's very similar to the word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit, the helper. When Paul describes God as the God of all comfort, what he means is that God is the one who brings true comfort through the giving of his Son, the Lord Jesus. The God of comfort is fundamentally the God who acts in our lives to bring about salvation. Earlier this week, as I was preparing for this time, I was listening to music and writing, and I came across a song which I know well that was written by uh, two songwriters, Andy Gullahorn and Jason Gray. It's called, I Will Find a Way. And they capture this truth so well. The refrain of the song says this, how should I come to the one I love? I will find a way. I will find a way. God's way of comfort is to come near to us through the person of Jesus. All the suffering, all the pain, all the fear, all the uncertainty of our present lives, God intends to meet these and more with the comfort of Jesus. His care begins as we behold His glory and as we see His supremacy through the person and work of Christ. His care overflows to others as we, with fullest assurance and confidence in the gospel, we praise the Father of mercies. Sometimes we praise Him with a broken voice, but we always do so in hope and always from a heart strengthened by His grace. So how does God care for us? He invites us to embrace Him as supreme for our lives. Second, how, do he, how does he care for us and how do we care for others? We receive the consolations of Jesus Christ. Look with me at the beginning of verse four. This God of comfort is a God who acts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Think of the implications of this statement. God, who has supremely brought comfort through Jesus Christ, intends for this comfort to apply to every instance of suffering that we could face. Here's what I know that we're facing. Here's what I know about what we're facing right now. Everyone's lives have been upended by COVID-19. Everyone. But this hasn't somehow muted the effects of sin in my life or your life but instead it's actually exposed what material comfort can reasonably hide. In all likelihood, in the last week, you've experienced more difficulty, more relational conflict, more anxiety, more despair, more fear, more temptation to sin, more difficulty with lust, with anger, with shame, with sorrow, more anguish and tears, and not less. But consider what God is saying. God comforts us in all our affliction. Human sinfulness crafts its own kind of suffering. 
but God intends for his mercy expressed through Jesus to bring comfort and help in these situations too, even as we navigate shared circumstantial difficulty. But how does this actually work? How do we receive the consolations of Christ for these troubles in the shadow of our current trials? Think through with me about three examples, relational conflict, fear, and despair. Conflict happens when pride blinds us to the true nature of what we desire. We want wrongly and we punish others when they don't do as we demand. The consolation of Jesus is his work of freeing our wrenched hands away from a lesser hope and replacing it with true contentment, with true love, with true peace. So much so that the fire of pride loses all of its oxygen and it ceases to burn everyone and everything around it. Fear and anxiety happen when we believe that the worst is coming and we can't escape. And so we look within and we retreat towards self-protection when the skies get dark. The consolation of Jesus is his work of confirming in our hearts that his presence brings ultimate safety and that even where physical danger remains, his grace is greater. Despair comes when the burdens of this broken world touch our lives in a personal way. We suffer loss, we, uh, we lose hope, and we can't see light. Regarding the coronavirus, one psychologist that was being interviewed on CNN in recent days describes the effects of such an outlook because she was talking about the economy and she said this, um, so goes the economy, so goes our mental health. And what she meant was the deterioration of the economy had a direct correlation with the rise of anxiety and depression and fear. And it is only the consolation of Jesus that promises that our suffering isn't gonna have the final word and that the resurrection of Jesus means our resurrection for those who trust in him. And that the invitation in, as a response is to believe and to wait with patience. So how does God care for us? He cares for us through the consolations of Jesus, which we receive by faith. But how do we care for others? That's what I wanna answer with you uh, in the next few points. This third theme we've been uh, of what we've been discussing this morning is that we then seek to reflect the incarnational heart of Christ. How does God care for us? He invites us to see him as supreme. He calls us to receive the consolations of Jesus. And now as we begin to look towards others, we seek to reflect the incarnational heart of our savior. God comforts us with a specific purpose. Look with me still at verse four. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In my role here as Northway, as pastor of care and counseling, I get to have a lot of conversations with people about counseling, soul care, personal ministry, and so on. I love discussing biblical counseling with people, but it's not because it's part of my vocation. I love talking about biblical counseling because biblical counseling is about the gospel. It's about helping others, yes, with the problems that we face with gospel hope, but it's just as much about helping people to learn that their calling to care for others is one of the most significant entry points to gospel mission. 
My job is not only to navigate a person's problem from a biblical perspective, but it's to help them see the wonder of gospel centrality for all of life and even the urgency of bringing God's consolation to a world in need. And let's think about today. At what point in your life have you ever experienced something so shared as what we are currently navigating with the coronavirus? Those of you who remember 9-11 remember the impact and you remember the shared sense of grieving and loss, but the disruption was not felt in quite such a universal manner. But what hope exists for a person that's affected by this disruption and the kind of risks that this trial creates, but also those afflicted by conflict, fear, despair, and a host of other troubles, the only hope is the, is the true hope that comes through Jesus Christ. We're not called to offer material needs alone, even though these are really important, but those are not the things that are going to bring consolation in the, in the face of sin and its effects. Grace and mercy through Jesus Christ are the only hope for all people everywhere. And as a result, the message of the gospel that brings consolation to our hearts is the same message that we are called to herald to others. God's comfort came to you by revelation. Your comfort towards others comes by declaration. One commentator described this as comfort that speaks. It's comfort that shares the hope that we have. So if we've trained folks in the ministry of care and counseling, People often will ask, yeah, I know that this is the way that we're supposed to care for Christians, but what about people who don't believe? And my response has been and always will be the same, that we in all situations seek to bring the consolations of the gospel to someone's life. If it's a Christian, then it's for their growth and maturity in Christ, but if it's a non-Christian, it's for their salvation and their redemption. But how do we do that? especially in today's unprecedented circumstances. Well, my guess is right now, you have probably had actually more un unexpected access to people in your life than maybe ever before, at least in this era of um, smartphones and social media and, and the various ways that technology has changed our life. But when has there ever been a time when people, so many people are home from work, they're home from school, and what might it look like for you to practice the incarnational heart of Jesus in engaging those in your direct spheres of influence? Maybe it's not person to person. Maybe it's yard to yard. Maybe it's on the phone. Maybe it's on a video call and so forth. But we have an opportunity. And when we do this, how can we ask questions that explore the heart of that person and to listen with patience, all so that we might encourage them in the hope that is possible through Christ Jesus. God's comfort entered our pain. How can we enter into the pain of other people? And so I wanna give maybe three simple steps for how we can do this. They might not be easy, but they're at least simple and, and memorable. The first is this, that we can enter their world. The second is that we can begin to understand their need and third, we can offer Christ and his redemption. First, we enter in. We take the time to say hello, to speak with those folks in our lives, to call those who we know may be alone in more ways than just physically. We enter in. We make uh, an effort to be there with them in whatever way we can. 
Second, we listen to what the person is really saying in order to understand where they are and what they need. This is different than just surface conversation, like, wow, this whole COVID-19 thing is really crazy, but we're listening for the deep cry of the heart. I'm lonely, I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm gonna do with this conflict, with my kids, with my money. And we ask questions that lovingly explore those responses, those motivations, those hopes. And that will allow us third to bring Christ and his redemption to their lives. We have the opportunity, perhaps in a more direct way than, than we've ever experienced, at least in this place and in this time, we have the opportunity to tell someone that there is hope even in the midst of uncertainty, that there is a God who loves them, who created them, who is sovereign over all things, including global pandemics, and who is faithful and who is good. We have the opportunity to help them see that worry and anxiety and the dulling of the pain of brokenness with sin is never going to lead to the satisfaction that we hope for, but only death and destruction. And then we have the opportunity to share with them that there is a comfort for our troubles that's possible through Jesus. That he longs to know them, that he longs to demonstrate his love to them, and that he promises to help them as they navigate the trials of this life. Comfort of the kind that God intends to bring to another person's life through Christ only comes from hearing from those who have first experienced it themselves. So how does God care for us? He comforts us in every affliction. How do we care for others? We seek to comfort them in all their affliction. We invite them to see that God is supreme, that he is the one who intends to comfort them, and we encourage them to believe that hope. Fourth, how does God care for others? How, do we, how does God care for us? How do we care for others? We learn to identify with the sufferings of Jesus. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. As Paul continues with his introduction to the book of 2 Corinthians, he lays out the primary manner in which our comfort comes through suffering. And he says that it comes through the identification with the sufferings of Jesus as we share in Christ's sufferings. So wait, what does that mean? That sounds really counterintuitive, counterproductive, but here's what I mean. This text is showing us that the life of the Christian is fundamentally a life of identification with Jesus. As we suffer, we don't just experience difficulties, but in a very real sense, our sufferings reflect the sufferings of Jesus. This is actually profoundly good news because it brings a sense of meaning to our suffering that could never exist apart from our identification with Christ. And part of the fear that we're experiencing as a culture comes from a misunderstanding regarding the places and the purposes of suffering. This is what I mean. 
In ages past, suffering was inherently understood as something that at a minimum brought about at least perseverance and maturity in life. Christianity transformed the meaning of suffering by giving it a meaning otherwise unknown through the resurrection of Christ, the promises, promise of his return. It said there's going to be a day when suffering ends. But as our culture has moved further and further towards a purely secular perspective, what has happened is that suffering has become the unwanted visitor that we just can't figure out how to evict. We know it's coming to visit, but we don't know what to do when it gets here. And as a result, we find ourselves overcome by anxiety when we realize it may be around the corner, or we become embittered because we can't muster the courage to address it constructively when it overstays its welcome. So in this sense, we answer the question, how does God care for us by learning that he intends for us to reframe the way we see our suffering and to see it in a different way. God intends for us to see our sufferings as part of our identification with Christ. As we suffer with him, we learn the power of his sufferings on our behalf, which leads to both gratitude for what he did for us, but also hope. As we continue to walk through our suffering with faith and with endurance, we are upheld by the power and promise of Jesus' own victory over suffering. Just as he was raised, so too will we. So how does God care for us in this sense? He helps us to live as a testimony to the power of God over and through suffering. What does this mean for you today? It means that you can face trials even those that are unprecedented in our time with a clear conviction that only our union with Jesus brings meaning to these difficulties and that he will restore what sin and its effects have broken. So how do we care for others then from this understanding? Notice the way that Paul speaks to the Corinthians in this section. He says that as we suffer, it's for your comfort. When other people see the sufferings that are faced by the Christian and they observe his or her faith and endurance, that actually makes hope real to a person. You care, for, you care well for other people to the degree that you model hope and the testimony of Jesus in the midst of your own difficulty. You bear up your brothers and sisters with your own trust in Christ. You testify to the power of God to those who do not yet believe when you suffer in identification with Christ. So how does God care for others? By helping to reframe our understanding of suffering. And how do we, or how does God care for us? How do we care for others? By testifying to the sufferings and the comfort of Jesus. Fifth, how does God care for us? How do we care for others? by helping us to pursue God-dependence amid affliction. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Up to this point, we have said the following about God's care. He intends for us to see him as supreme in our lives. He comforts us through the consolations of the gospel. He bears us up with comfort 
through our identification with Christ. But what is the purpose? To what end do these things lead? And how does that then inform the, the way that God cares for us and how we are to care for other people? This is where verses 8 through 10 come in. Paul's description is striking, but it's not terribly unusual. All over the pages of Scripture, we see honest depictions of suffering. Paul captures the heart of his experiences suffering persecution while he was ministering in the city of Ephesus. The pain, the fear, the trauma, all so much that he felt that death couldn't be far off. But notice the very next thing he says regarding the purpose of such experiences in verse 9, that this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why would he say this? Is self-reliance really such a bad thing in the face of suffering? Well, yes, but for several reasons. First, Paul knows that our core response of difficulty, our core response to difficulty is to act like something of a human roly-poly. We just circle up and we protect ourselves from any further damage. And yes, that might provide a measure of protection, but such a response can never really address the pain and devastation that sin, suffering, and its effects has on our lives. Second, Paul knows that the biggest danger that we face to our suffering is actually our own sin. So follow, follow me for just a second. A person can struggle with sin, they can respond with humility and repentance, they can receive forgiveness and healing. A person can be sinned against, they can work towards godly forgiveness and they can see reconciliation and peace. Someone can suffer in significant ways, they can see that hope is possible through Christ and they can respond with faith. But what happens if the response changes? If it moves away from trust and dependence? and towards a hard, impenitent, and embittered, embittered heart. It doesn't matter the nature of their initial experience of sin and suffering. Their response has determined how they will or will not see God's grace equip them towards growth and peace. As Jesus has said, it's not what, outs what is outside of a person that brings defilement, but rather what's inside of us. Paul knows this. And he understands that even in his suffering, God's intention is that he would respond with faith and with dependence. Such a response is possible as a person remembers God's past faithfulness, as they reflect upon God's present care, and as they look forward to the promise of God's future deliverance. So how does God care for us? He leads us towards God-dependence. And how do we care for others? We lead them in the same direction. We encourage and we exhort the same kind of dependence and trust that we ourselves are trying to learn to pursue, knowing that such effort, led by the Spirit, empowered by His grace, trains us and leads us ever towards a posture of, of trust and of godliness. So how does God care for us? He leads us towards God dependence. But lastly, how do we care for others? How do we see God's care for us? Sixth, we invite mutual ministry through humility. Look at verse 11. 
You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Right at the end of this section, Paul does something amazing. He invites the Corinthians, with all their immaturity and problems, to actually pray for him. In fact, he demands it. He insists. And up to this point, we have talked about caring for others as a process that largely looks like us receiving from God so that we can give His grace and extend it to others. But here we learn that there is actually another aspect to the ministry of care in inviting those we care for to care for us. Some of the most impactful ministry conversations I've ever had have come when people that I'm caring for have turned it around and insisted on caring for me. They know that I need to be reminded of God's grace in Christ. They know that I am a needy recipient of God's mercy, and they're eager to join in ministering that grace to me. This is why our value is expressed the way that it is. We care for one another in the hope of the gospel. Yes, we do have leaders that God has given to the church who are called to care and equip folks for ministry, but these leaders are still in need of being cared for. I love it when I see men and women grow in their own lives such that they learn when I need to be encouraged. It's humbling, but I and you must invite it. It's part of how God cares for us, and it's part of how we care for other people. So these are the six things that we've said today in answering these two questions. How does God care for us, and how do we seek to care for others? First, by learning to embrace God as supreme in all of life. Second, by receiving the consolations of the gospel of Jesus for every trial. Third, by seeking to comfort others in the hope of Christ. Fourth, by our identification with Christ through suffering. Fifth, by our pursuit of God dependence. And sixth, by inviting mutual ministry through humility. But what does this look like for us here at Northway? We are in unusual times, to say the least, but there is still ministry to pursue. There are still ways in which we are called to care for each other. And for seen so far, you are doing this exceedingly well. You are bringing your needs to one another. You are being faithful to pray. You are encouraging one another with gospel hope. All that you would be doing in person through this time, you are doing online, over the phone, and in spirit where you are unable to be present in person. So, so what's lacking then? Why are we talking about this today? If I were to seek to offer a loving and gracious encouragement and exhortation, it would be this. Don't walk away from the call to be courageous, and don't walk away from the pursuit of confidence in the hope of Christ. What do I mean about courage? First, in that many times the thing that we need to say, the question that we need to ask, the comfort that we need to apply, it remains unsaid. Courage in that invitation to a lonely friend, a needy friend, a difficult friend, remains unsent. Lack of courage in that our compassion to see others as Christ does remains uncultivated and unexpressed. These are not problems that, um, that are unique or new to this season we're facing, but they are problems that will be magnified and, and further complicated if we don't seek to respond with the call to care for other people. 
a lack of confidence or a struggle with confidence in that we generally feel like we don't have the training or the experience to say the right thing well or when not to speak. It's a feeling that we don't have a, an accurate understanding of human difficulty so that we can know how the gospel applies. It's a feeling that we we don't know when to ask for help, when to pray, when to get other people involved. And I, I want to encourage you that you you know more than you think you do. You are called to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Word of God, but that we also want to help you and to equip you so that you can minister God's grace with a type of humble confidence. And so what we do, what we will continue to do, even in the midst of um, strange times, is that we want to train you. In the fall, we started offering training in biblical counseling so that we could grow not only in godly courage, but in also the competency that we need to use the scriptures in ministering to others. We were disrupted by the tornado, but our commitment is to continue forward training you. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like in the days to come, but I want you to know that we're committed to see it through because this value is so significant. We also want to help equip you to see your lives rightly through the consolations and the comfort of the gospel. This is why something like STEPS exists, to help you um, grow in your understanding of the supremacy of the gospel and the sufficiency of God's word for everyday life. If you think back to our very first uh, value sermon on scripture, we talked about uh, our commitment to the truth, the authority, and the sufficiency of scripture. And this is where we see that reality come to bear on daily life. We want you to be a part of that if you haven't already been a part of it. And if you're wondering how you can grow in your own disciple-making ability, all of the things we've talked about today are about making disciples. Then come be a steps mentor. Come be trained in the ministry of the Word so that you can have the opportunity to put those skills into practice. Lastly, there are also times where we know that a more personal setting can help in addressing the problems we face with the hope of the gospel. This is why we offer biblical counseling to our members, to our attendees, and to those in our community, we do this free of charge. We do this with those who have a little bit further training and experience. But what I want you to understand is that my hope is not that all of our church begin pursuing biblical counseling, though we do want to help you, but that rather we would grow in, in our ability to care for one another in such a way that sound, godly counsel is the regular expression of caring ministry in our lives everywhere we gather, rather than being something that's limited only to a few. So what would I say as we wrap up our time this morning? God's care for you comes through the person of Jesus Christ. He is not absent from the suffering that we're facing, but he is near. He intends to help us see him as supreme and ultimate, full of glory in all of our lives so that we can rejoice, we can receive the consolations of Jesus Christ, and we can let those consolations spill over into the way we minister to others at a, at a very unique and providential and important time in the life of our city. I want to pray with you to that end and ask God to help us as we seek to steward the gift of grace in our ministry as we care for other people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the revelation of your word that by the Spirit of God, you instruct us and you equip us to love you and to trust in you and to obey you. We pray that you would help us to put into practice the things that we have learned and have been taught by you this morning 
that by the Spirit, you would equip us for such a purpose. And through the consolations of Jesus, you would continue to encourage us as we walk through um, this season. We love you. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I love you. I thank God for you, praying for you in the days to come. Um, Be blessed.